following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Here's what we're going to do uh, for the next three weeks or so, three or four. Uh, we're going to do a short series in the book of Psalms. Okay? That'll bridge us through to Advent, where we'll do something to do with the birth of Jesus. All right, I promise you, it'll be something to do with the birth of Jesus. But the Psalms is where we're going to be. Um, I love the book of Psalms. I, I start almost every morning with a psalm. I read this morning, reading Psalm 103, and it's just become rhythm of my life. I, I would commend it to any one of you because there is a psalm for every mood, every emotion, every day, every experience, every headspace, every kind of state of mind. Um, the Psalms is such a rich book, such diversity. I think sometimes we assume the Psalms is kind of the flaky stuff. Do you find that? Do you think that? Sometimes the Psalms, we sort of think, oh, that's, the, that's, that's, that's the frilly stuff. You know, that's the stuff people write in these daily devotionals. But, you know, if you really want the meat, you've got to go to Romans. You know? And I pro- one, of these, one of these years we will do Romans. Gary, I promise. Gary's been waiting 20 years in this church. For us to go through Romans. One, one of these years, Gary. I promise you, man. But I, I, would, I would argue that the Psalms is not the fluffy stuff. Uh, I think the book of Psalms, some of, if not the densest, richest theology in the Old Testament, because it pulls everything else together in a way. It pulls together Israel's experience and understanding of God and Yahweh and their journey with Him. And we learn in the Psalms who God is, His nature, His character, His relationship with humanity and the land and creation, Israel in particular. Uh, There is a richness in the Psalms that we often just don't appreciate. So it's not the fluffy stuff this morning, all right? We're diving deep into the Psalms, and today we are going to start with Psalm 113, 113 is where we're going to be. So you can be turning there or getting it on your device. And fun little fact about this Psalm, just before we dive in, this is one of the Psalms that is used in the the Jewish meal of Passover. So, So Jewish people celebrate Passover. They still celebrate Passover today as they did in Jesus' day. And during the meal of Passover, this is a psalm that would be read before the meal. One of two psalms that will be read before the Passover meal. And that is interesting because, of course, Jesus shared a Passover meal with his disciples, didn't he? The night before he died. And so you can imagine that scene where Jesus and the disciples were sitting around. And before dinner, Jesus, or, or one of them, would have read Psalm 113. And it was part of the tradition Someone would have said these words. And so this is the worship book of Jesus, the Psalms. That's another way to think of it. Jesus quoted from the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. So he obviously didn't think it was the fluffy stuff. He was constantly drawing on the Psalms. That was his book of prayer. That was his book of praise. That was his book of worship. So really, really significant. So Psalm 113. Here we go. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, 
who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Okay, we're going to start by learning a little bit of Hebrew. You up for it? I told you we're not doing the fluffy stuff. All right? So the first word of this psalm is the Hebrew word, halal. Everybody say halal. Yeah, you've got, to, if you don't, you've got to feel it in the back of your throat, though. Halal. Just turn to the person next to you. Just get that guttural, throaty sound going, halal. Halal. Yeah. Not to be confused with hello, or not to be confused with halal, which is the Islamic dietary laws. It's not that either. Halal. Halal. And it just means praise, just as it's translated. It means praise. Now, the second word is Yahweh. Everybody say Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh yeah. So, and that, that's the name of God. That's the Old Testament name for God. So, of course, you put those two words together. Praise Halal. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Except that in this first phrase, linguistically what happens is that Halal gets lengthened to become Hallelujah. And Yahweh gets shortened to become Yah. And so you end up with Hallelujah. Ah, you know that word, don't you? Hallelujah. That's where it comes from. It's just this blending together of two Hebrew words that mean hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's funny because hallelujah, like the English word hallelujah has kind of got a bit of a cheesy connotation, doesn't it? Like it's sort of one of those Christian cliches. It's a bit cringe, you know, when someone says hallelujah. You just kind of groan inwardly. Oh, yeah, well, not, not when you say it, Brian. Not when you say it. That sounds good. You've made it good again. Leonard Cohen made it cool again. But in general, the words kind of, it's, maybe it's drifted a little bit into, into a bit of a Christian cliche, but there is a depth to that word. Hallelujah. Hallel Yahweh. Praise the Lord. One of the um, resonances in my mind of that word is when Anna and I were living in the US and and his family came over one Christmas, and we spent Christmas in New York together, which was amazing. And in that week before Christmas, we went to the Carnegie Hall, great concert hall in New York, and we watched a performance of Handel's Messiah, which was spectacular. Um, and Handel's Messiah, if you've ever seen it or heard it, it is very, very long. <laughs> and I, like, I'm, I'm, I was trying to sit there being this very sophisticated, cultured person surrounding by all these you know, rich New Yorkers, and after a while, though, you're like, man, this is long. <laughs> like, when's, the, when's the hallelujah chorus coming? Because you know, that's, the, that's the climax of the thing, the hallelujah chorus. And there is this amazing moment where just before the hallelujah chorus, people, you, nobody says anything, but everybody just stands. The whole audience, just they just know. I guess they go often enough. They just stand. And then you have the triumphant anthem of the hallelujah chorus. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, the great words from Revelation. And it is one of those shiver down your spine moments. It's pretty spectacular. So I kind of carry that in my mind as well when I think of hallelujah. I think of the hallelujah chorus. But let's dive into this and uh, see what the psalm of praise has to say to us about the God whom we are praising this morning. First three verses of the psalm 
are simply a call to worship. Kind of like Jeremy was doing this morning, gathering us, calling us to worship. That's what the psalmist is doing. And he's saying, praise the Lord. He's calling Israel to praise the Lord from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. The name of the Lord is to be praised. So when we talk about the name of the Lord, praising the name of the Lord, we're not just, that's not just the name God. That's not just the name Yahweh. That the name of God is all of the attributes of who God is. So we praise God for his wisdom. We praise God for his power. We praise God for his glory. We praise God for his love. What else? Throw some words out. We praise God for what? His silence. We pray. <laughs> Sometimes God is silent. What else? What are some qualities of God that we would praise him for? His forgiveness. Yeah, what else was that? His compassion. Yeah, his endless love and mercy. And that comes out in the psalm. Yeah, anything else? His wrath, yes, we pray. Even his wrath, yeah, even his divine righteous anger is in some ways praiseworthy. We praise him for all that he is and all that he's done. All of that is wrapped up and encompassed in praising the name of the Lord. And we learn in these first couple of verses that the praise of God is eternal, it's now and forevermore. Verse 2 says, it is ongoing. In other words, there's been this anthem of praise that has been going on for eternity past. It'll go on into eternity future. And it is from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, praise stretches across all creation. You know, it's not just human beings who praise God. Did you know that? Praise is not just something people do. And it's Psalm 19, that Psalm Mike spoke on a couple of weeks ago. The heavens declare the glory of God. Right, The heavens are praising God all the time. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and, and the crowd's going wild and the Pharisees rebuked his disciples, what did Jesus say? If they don't praise me, who's going to do it? The rocks. The rocks are going to cry out. They're going to rock. They're going to praise me. You know, this is like, I don't know exactly how a rock praises God just by being a rock, by being part of God's creation. But creation praises God. The mountains speak of his grandeur. The sunsets speak of his beauty. The rocks speak of his longevity, that he has been eternal. They've been there for a long time. You know, creation testifies. Creation is praising. So what I'm saying is don't ever think that praise is something that just starts and ends with a church service. Don't ever think like we come in here and we kind of turn on some praise and then we turn off the tap and go home. No, praise is something that is an anthem that's been going on for all eternity from all creation. It's going to go on into all eternity future across all creation. And for this one brief moment, we get to add our voices to the chorus. We just get to add our voices to the symphony of praise that's going on. We participate in something that is already happening. It doesn't start and end with us. So the call to praise and then the rest of the psalm is taken up with the reasons for praise, the why of praise. Why do we praise God? There's many, many reasons. The psalmist just gives us two. Firstly, we praise God because of his greatness, verse four to six, because of his greatness. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above all the heavens. We, we might not make too much of those words, but these are significant statements. 
These were highly contested statements in the ancient world. A lot of the time, among ancient nations like Israel, the gods of other nations were very tied to those nations. So the Babylonians had their gods, Marduk and so on, and the, and the Canaanites had Baal and so on. And, and these gods, they served their people or they, they were over their people. And Marduk was very much the god of the Babylonians. He watched over that city or that empire. And there really wasn't the sense that these gods went beyond their nations. And yet here comes Israel onto the scene. And Israel starts talking about this God, Yahweh, and how his, his reign is over all nations. And his sovereignty is over all peoples. He's not just the God of Israel. He's also the God of Egypt. And he's also the God of Babylon. And he's also the God of Samaria. And he's also the God of Canaanites. And he's, he's the God of all nations. And you can just imagine what the other nations thought of that. They would have been seething. Because every nation is supposed to have its own God and the gods are supposed to stick to their nations. And now Yahweh is claiming supremacy over all nations. That was a very audacious claim to make in these times. And in, in some ways, you know, maybe not a lot has changed. You know, we live in a time now in a, in a highly secular context where secular society would say, you Christians, you keep your God to yourselves. You know, you keep them in that little box. Secular society has conveniently carved the world up into the public sphere and then the private sphere. And they would say to us, you guys keep your God in your own little worship service. Thank you very much. You can have your worship services. You can have your church services. You can praise your God. You can have your little prayer, praise party as much as you want. But don't for a minute think about letting that God out of that box. Don't for a minute Think about bringing your faith or your God into the public square, into the public sphere, because that is off limits. Your God is just your God over your little community, and that's it. Don't you even think about bringing him to work. Don't even think about bringing him onto the campus of a university. You keep him in your own privatized little gatherings, you Christians. But the problem is, I don't make the rules. I don't make the rules for God. He doesn't play by my rules. And what we read is that God is exalted over all nations. He just won't stay in that box, even if you try and put him there. God refuses to stay in that box because he is the Lord of every nation. His jurisdiction is not limited to the church. He is the God of the church. He's the God of Christians, but he's not just the God of Christians. He's the God of every nation. He's the God of every community, of every society, of every culture, of every nation. He's the God, in the words of the uh, Jewish scholar Abraham Kuyper, he is the God who looks at every square inch of creation and says, it is mine. Every single square inch of the cosmos and says, that is mine, his hand is upon it. He's the God even of those who don't acknowledge him. He's the God of those who don't surrender to him. He's the God of those who have never heard of him. He is the God of all people, all authorities, and all powers, every nation. And honestly, I don't find that. I mean, that is a contested claim to make. Like that, and now I think that will become an increasingly contested claim for Christians to make in a heavily secular context such as we live in. But I don't find that disturbing. I find that incredibly reassuring. That God is the God of all nations. That he is sovereign. Because as I look at all the nations, there's a world of problems. As I look at the nations, there's a whole lot of chaos as I look at the war in Ukraine, you just see an absolute nightmare. 
You see a massive refugee crisis. You see repercussions for the global economy. And, and economically, we see sign after sign now and report after report and commentary after commentary that the global economy is not in good shape. New Zealand's economy is not in good shape. And that's indicative of a global economy that doesn't seem to be heading in the right direction next year. Inflation's going crazy. Cost of living's going crazy. Interest rates are going crazy. If this is not true, then we should be afraid. If this is not true, we should be running around like chicken licking, fearing that the sky is going to fall in on us. If this is not true, we have reason to look out there and just see chaos and calamity. But if these words are true, we know there is a God who is exalted over everything that is going on, even over things that might seem so-called secular and unspiritual, like the global financial economy. We can still say God is on his throne. And he is exalted above everything that's going on, above every nation, above every capital market, above every financial economy, above every GDP. He is exalted above everything that's going on. He is in control. When things look like they're out of control, God is still on his throne. He's still working his story out. He's seen it all before. He's been here a lot longer than we have. He's going to be doing his thing a lot long time after we're gone. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, still working out his sovereign purposes and plans, still moving the gospel forward, still guiding history towards the day where he makes all things new. Our God is sovereign over the nations. That should be reassuring because we live under that sovereignty. And we can say, yes, we see a whole lot of insecurity. Yes, we see a lot of instability. Yes, we see a lot of insecurity, but we know that God holds this world, right? We know he holds us. He holds our families. He holds our church. He holds our communities. He holds our future in his hands. As the old saying goes, I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. And that is tremendously encouraging. What I'm trying to say is that these are not just nice little religious words that you say in church. This is hope for the soul in the midst of global economic difficulties. This is hope for the human soul in the midst of turbulent and unstable times. This is our anchor right here, knowing that there is a God on the throne of the universe who holds all things in his hands. That's the meaning and encouragement we should take from these words. So we praise God. There's a reason to praise him. We praise him because of his greatness. And just before we leave that section, just have a quick look in passing at verse 6, these beautiful words. Well, back to verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Isn't that a great image? That God's on his throne, but he stoops down. It's like bending down to look at the heavens and the earth, I think this rescues us from drifting into deism, which is just that idea that God's there, but he doesn't care. That God just kind of winds the world up like a toy and then lets it go. No, we read about a God who looks with intent upon the earth, who cares, who sees, who is involved, who is upholding and sustaining everything at every moment. He's sovereign but he's involved and he cares. He's looking upon the heavens and the earth. So we praise God for his greatness. And then the second reason that we praise God, verse seven to nine, we praise him because of his mercy. And if you're reading through the psalm, you see in verse seven, the whole tone shifts. The whole tone of the, of the psalms kind of changes. 
And now we read about the mercy and the compassion of God. Verse 7, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes. He settles the childless woman in her home. These words are actually taken from an earlier story in the Bible. In the book of 1 Samuel, we have the story of Hannah. And Hannah was a woman who wanted to have children, was desperate to have kids, and she couldn't. She cried out to God and prayed to God for children, and she was mocked for it by another woman, which was tragic. And Hannah cries out to God, and eventually God gives her a son, and he becomes the prophet Samuel. And as Hannah then turns around and says, thank you, God, for this incredible gift, she says exactly these words, and she describes God as the one who lifts up the poor from the ash heap from the dust, and raises up the needy from the ash heap, and seats them with the princes. Those are her words. And so what's happened is the psalmist has come along and lifted those words out of 1 Samuel and put them into the psalm, because they're such a good description of who God is, and his character, and his mercy. And I think we we need to say in this context that this is not a promise that every woman who wants to have children is going to be able to have children. I wish it was. We've got to be careful not to read this too literally and too woodenly. Uh, You know, there are many women desperate to have children who cry out to God like Hannah did, and they're still unable to have kids. And God, I think the psalm is is an assurance that God hears that pain, that God sees that heartache, that heartbreak, that he knows. He knows that cry, and he cares deeply, and his heart is so full of compassion This is who God is being described as, the God whose heart is so full of love towards every broken person, towards every broken situation, towards every heart that is empty and broken and struggling and suffering, towards the poor, towards those who just do not have enough, towards those who lack resources and power and the ability to really participate in a flourishing life. God knows that and he sees that and he is moved with compassion towards those. He's moved with incredible love. God just has this bent in his nature and his, and his whole disposition to move towards the poor, to move towards the needy, to move towards the marginalized, to move towards the outcast and fill them and lift them, lift their heart. May not change their circumstances, but lift and restore and bless and fill them with his presence, and surround them with his love. That's the character of God too. You have this incredible greatness that's being proclaimed, but then you have this incredible mercy for the lowest and the least and the last and the lost. That's God too. These words remind me of a conversation that Biffy and I had not long before I went on sabbatical. And we met with a woman from Tearfund who had just come back from Indonesia. And she was telling us stories about um, some of the things going on over there, and a project that I think is relatively new to Tear Fund called Mums and Bubs. And she just come back from, I think it's called, I think you say Dimpasa. Does that sound right, Andrew? Something like that. Dimpasa uh, in Bali. And so Tear Fund, through a local church there, is working with uh, mothers who are just living in absolute poverty, abject poverty. They're in tiny urban, urban slums, tiny apartments. They don't have in those apartments access to clean drinking water. They have shared facilities. And they've got newborn babies, and the husbands are off working whatever menial job they can. And these mums just don't have the support, they don't have the resources, they don't have the capacity to raise these babies. And so this local church, with the support of Tear Fund, comes in 
and provides this holistic wraparound support to these mothers in that first critical year of the baby's life. So they're providing services that for us would be provided by midwives, by district nurses, and by Plunkett, as well as just by the social connections that we have. But they're getting alongside these mums, and they're upskilling and they're helping, and they're encouraging, and they're providing some social connection, which is so good for their mental and emotional and spiritual health, and it is all happening through the church. And it just reflects to me these words when I read about the God who lifts up the poor from the dust. I mean, this is what, that is literally what is happening, lifting up the needy from the rubbish dump. You know, sometimes literally that is what is happening. And this is taking place in Denpasa right now. God is still doing what he's declared thousands of years ago, that he would do and will do, and that's arm. And what I love about that, about mums and bubs, is that that's happening through the church. So this is not just some other kind of intervention. This is happening through the people of God. That local church, maybe more than one, is themselves reaching their own community in Dimpasa and working among the poor to bring this kind of restoration and holistic love that the psalm is describing. And this is the way it works, Right? So God doesn't just autom- automatically, arbitrarily do these things. He works through his people. And this is where the psalm becomes a challenge as well as an invitation to us. We need to reflect, I think, if we're reading these words, if we're reading here about a God who raises the poor from the dust, I think we've got to ask ourselves, do we care about the poor? God seems to. God seems to have something to say about the poor. And we can, I know we can easily spiritualize it, but God has something to say about the materially, financially poor. I think we've got to ask ourselves, do I have that heart? Do I care? Or do I look, with the poor, look at the poor with cynicism and negativity and judgment and criticism? That's not what Jesus did. That's not what God is doing here. God is the one who lifts up the needy from the ash heap. We could look around us and say, who are the needy? Don't, not even necessarily overseas, but just around you. Who are the ones? Who are the ones? Because... What the psalm is calling us to do is not just praise God with our lips, but praise Him with our lives. Isn't that who we should be? At a certain point, we're called to walk this out by the grace of God. And so we look around and say, who are the needy? Who are the ones around you who are really battling, who just don't have enough, who are struggling, who have hit significant health issues, who have got mental health struggles at the moment, who things are just in, in a bad space for them? Could you be the one? This week, to provide some generosity, to make a meal, to encourage them, to send a text, to catch up for coffee, whatever. You, as you do those things, small ways, you're embodying the spirit of the psalm. You're embodying the spirit of Yahweh. You're embodying the nature of God. And that should be the invitation to us, not just to stand in church and say these words. Yes, we do praise and we do love God. But if we love God, we should also love the things God loves, shouldn't we? And we read here, God loves the poor. He loves the needy. And so should we. And I will take this one step further then and say, you know, in some sense, this is all of us. Because in some sense, we are all the poor. Aren't we? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's every one of us. Every one of us is spiritually bankrupt. Every one of us come to God with nothing. And in some way, you could read these words And without taking anything away from the importance of loving the poor, we can also see that this is every single one of us being spiritually poor and God has lifted us up from the dust, hasn't he? This is a picture of salvation. 
God has lifted you up from the dust. He's lifted you up in all your need and your sin and your condemnation. And he's seated you on high. And he's given you this place that is really the place of Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ is now yours. He seated you with the princes. This is a picture of your life. This is a picture of salvation. That's perhaps the greatest reason to praise God, isn't it? Because of the salvation that we receive through Jesus, that even though he was poor, through his poverty, the Bible says, you have become rich in the deepest and truest way. So it's a psalm of salvation. Reminds me of the words of that old hymn that say, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a saviour. That's beautiful. And that too is the heart of the psalm. That too is a reason to say hallelujah because our sin is far worse than we could ever imagine. But Jesus is a greater saviour than we could ever believe. And it's his grace that gives us the greatest reason to praise. So as you step back from this psalm, what can we say? Well, I'll tell you one word we can say. <laughs> hallelujah, right? You seem a bit sleepy this morning. Do you know, originally, hallelujah is supposed to be a shout of praise. Should we try it? At the risk of completely crashing and burning and embarrassing myself. Should we just try? I feel like Hallel Yahweh was for the Jewish people a shout of praise. So here we are now as the church in the 21st century. Do you think we could give a shout of praise? Hold on, don't just go crazy. Um, let me time it, okay? So I'll give you a one, two, three, and then we'll say hallelujah, okay? And let's shout it and declare it like we mean it. Here we go. One, two, three. Hallelujah. I knew you were awake. Fantastic. That's it. That's hallelujah. We have reason to praise God, yeah? We praise Him for His greatness, His transcendence, and we praise Him for His mercy, His nearness, His closeness, His imminence. These two things, they are both part of the nature of God. And here's the final thing. We don't just praise God here. Yeah, we do that, and we praise Him this morning, and we have been, and we will, and we praise Him in all sorts of ways as we gather, but we praise Him as we go from here. He calls us to a life of praise because he calls us to be living sacrifices. And praise is to be woven into the fabric of our lives. It's the greater challenge, I know. It's easy in some ways maybe to show up in church and sing a song, but that's not the fullness of praise. Praise is the rhythm of the Christian life, that every day we're lifting our heart to God and saying, praise God, thank you, God, thank you for your greatness. Thank you for your mercy. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Thank you, God, that I'm saved. Thank you, God, that you've called me out of darkness and you've placed me in your kingdom by nothing that I've done. I don't deserve an ounce of this, but God, thank you for your grace. Thank him. Every day, ask him, God, where are the ones that you would have me love and serve and encourage? God, you're the one who lifts up the poor from the dust. You're the one who lifts the needy from the ash heap. God, how can I embody that spirit in my life? Show me, God, lead me, lead me into this. That's a life of praise, increasing awareness, increasing love, and then walking this out in the power of the Holy Spirit. So may we be people of praise, church, yeah? People of praise now and forevermore. May we be a church of praise, yeah? From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. And may we live lives of praise. May our lives be a great symphony of praise that through our words and our deeds, we may say, 
Hallel Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise. Jesus, what can we say but praise you, God? And even now, just in this moment, we lift our hearts to you and we declare, we declare that you are God, that you are sovereign, exalted over the nations, your glory over the heavens. Praise you, God. We praise you as your servants, as your people, now and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. We lift up your name, God, and we praise you. Lord Jesus, for each of us now, would you show us, would you reveal to us what it means for us to live a life of praise? As we go from here, Lord God, help us not to put praise aside until next Sunday. But God, make us mindful, help us to be aware of how we can have the spirit of praise every day. Holy Spirit, come and fill us, come and show us, come and guide us. Come and shape us so that our lives may resound with praise to you. We thank you, God, that you receive our praise so freely. You are so worthy of it, Lord Jesus, worthy of it all. Thank you, God. From you are all things. Through you are all things. To you are all things. To you belong the glory forever and ever. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.